Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Christopher and Andy. Hey, it's the Vanilla JS guy. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Tommy Hodgins. Hi, from Toronto. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS, and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at netlify.com. Now, do people screw that up? Because I almost said like Hodgkins or something. Uh, yeah, I hear a bunch of creative variations. Yeah, I, I managed to get all the letters in the right order. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, sure. I am Tommy Hodgins. I'm a front-end web developer and trained as a graphic designer, and I specialize in doing a lot of responsive web design. Very cool. We did another show about responsive, and I think I think there was some other term that we used at the same time, but this is something that, that people really struggle with, in my uh, opinion, when I talk to people. They, they worry about, okay, yeah, how do I make it look good everywhere? Or they don't, and then it just looks terrible either on the phone or on the desktop. Yeah, it's easy to just not worry about it and just have it look terrible everywhere. Terrible everywhere is easier than good everywhere. I could say that much. Yeah. So so uh, I'm, I'm curious, when you talk about responsive, what exactly do you mean? Because some people, that's what they mean is it looks good everywhere. And other people, they have very specific definitions. It acts this way. It does these things. It has these features. Yeah. When I think about a responsive layout, I'm thinking about... Uh, web layout, and it could be responding to things like the browser's width or height. But also, it would be great if our styling could uh, respond to things like an element's own properties. So the width or height of an element on the page, or its text content, or different properties that it might have that you can use to apply or not apply styles. That's interesting. So if you if you add a class, or if you change some property of the element, you want it to respond to that too, huh? Yeah. Today, we're talking about um, some of your JavaScript in CSS stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I hadn't heard, I, I think a lot of folks have heard of CSS and JS, but what you do is something, I think, a fair bit different. And I hadn't heard the term before you used it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So in CSS, you can already create custom properties, which are also known as CSS variables. And these values can be set from JavaScript. So if you were going to invent your own property or if you wanted to invent a new unit or some kind of uh, value to use in JavaScript and CSS, you can use that together with a CSS variable. But you can also experiment with creating custom selectors and you can write custom at rules which would apply or not apply an entire style sheet at once. So by kind of incorporating JavaScript and CSS together, you can really do a lot of dynamic stuff. I think generally when I see JavaScript and CSS combined, it's usually animations and things. 
Yeah, it's definitely super useful there. We're seeing a lot of uses for CSS variables with animations because you can keep track of different parts of the state of the animation and then use them in different parts of the animation. And you can also bring kind of an element of reactive programming because the variable can represent any stream of data that JavaScript is aware of. So you can kind of harness that. A stream of data could be like the scroll position or the mouse cursor or user interactions and use that in your styles. Gotcha. So where are you using things like this? So generally, I get a lot of use out of regular CSS by itself. And so I try to do everything that I can do in CSS in CSS. But where I'm turning to this kind of dynamic styling is when I need something like to design a component and I want it to have responsive breakpoints based on its own width. If I can kind of design that in isolation as kind of like a self-responsive unit, then I can drop that into any layout on any website and be sure that it's going to show up the way that I want it to, no matter where it ends up. I'd like to hear what do you mean, like some examples of what you're talking about, like more concrete, like where you've actually used this and how it's come in handy. All right. I was working on a uh, real estate website and they had a pricing chart. And I'm sure you've seen that kind of a design before where you have three or four columns and there was a lot of information inside this chart, but it was very important that it show up well on desktop, on tablet, on phone. And so by having knowledge of how wide that pricing chart was, we could choose whether we wanted to display them kind of in a stacked layout or whether we wanted to show them side by side. And the width of that breakpoint depended on whether we were showing one, two, three, or four columns. And so by having some kind of like a self-responsive pricing chart, we were able to embed it. You could put it in a sidebar and it, you didn't have to worry about the breakpoints. It would just show up based on the, the size available. Or we could put it in any of the layouts on our site and didn't have to worry about it. Huh. Okay. Like I know this is a pretty classic problem of this sort of stuff because you've always got this similar type of cons, you know, construct or piece of information. And in this page, it fits out pretty well right where it's at. But then you go to the next page and then things are just off just a little bit, and you always have to either make some adjustments specific to the page. But what, you, so what you're talking about is trying to avoid that with just making the component itself just a lot smarter, right? Yeah, and it can also be trying to expose properties of elements that JavaScript is aware of to CSS in a way that allows you to style them. So another example of something that I've done recently is we had a video tag, just a regular HTML video tag, and CSS has, in the specification, there's a pseudo class for plain and a pseudo class for paused, but they're not supported in any browsers yet. And so the only way to add support is with JavaScript. But at the same time that I added the support to be able to style the video tag when it was plain or paused, I could also just invent my own pseudo classes like JavaScript is aware of when the video is muted. So I could expose that to a way that allows me to style it from CSS when the video is muted. Or you could target uh, the current time of the video based on like a range. We could have exposed the volume. Uh, anything that JavaScript is aware of could be used for styling. Huh. Okay. So uh, is what we're talking about just really a co uh, collection of your typical principles or are we talking about something that most developers aren't really doing today? Yeah, I, I feel like I, I've been doing a lot of research um, from 2015 onward into these techniques and kind of what's possible and what is useful. And I stumbled across a way of writing these that 
it's very simple and it's been possible for at least 15 years to kind of write the JavaScript to work with CSS the way that I've been doing it. Um, but I don't see a lot of people doing it. One of the big revelations that I discovered is that styling is event-driven in nature. So we usually think about whether you're writing CSS, you write the selector to grab the element and then you apply styles to it. Or with JavaScript, you get a reference to a DOM node so you can apply styles. But in reality, it's always coming from an event first. So even if it's just the page loading, the page loading applies these styles. Or when you hover something, these styles apply. And so when you want to extend CSS with JavaScript, you don't start with the elements, you start with the events that drive the style changes. And then you find the elements and give them the styles that they need just at that moment in time. So that's kind of the approach that I'm taking here. I think I get it. You're letting the events drive when you style your JavaScript. Yeah, so I think of a style sheet function which returns a string of CSS. And so you're listening to events, and these can be any browser event or event that's happening on a DOM node. You can also tie this into your code because JavaScript can create custom events and send them around, kind of like messages. And so it's very easy to integrate with if you have a, a framework that has life cycles and other events that are happening, you can have that kind of control and drive your CSS reprocessing. And you can also make use of things like resize observer, mutation observer, and intersection observer to again, send the events when they intercept something that would drive your CSS to reprocess. So you're always taking this style sheet function and getting just the CSS that you need at that moment in time. Now, isn't that kind of a system really performance intensive? It can be. Uh, it depends on how much you're operating, like how many nodes you're testing and how extensive the JavaScript is. But what I found is that for all of the different ways that you could use CSS and JavaScript together, this way of kind of using the events, event-driven virtual style sheet templating is the way that I found that performs the best. And so a few years ago when I was first experimenting with this stuff, I was measuring stuff in uh, milliseconds. I was trying to get everything under 16 milliseconds because 60 frames a second means that you have only 16.6 milliseconds to compute each frame. But now the types of things that I'm counting are in microseconds. So it's like an order of magnitude better. And so this stuff, it doesn't even come close to the 16 milliseconds. It might be 90 microseconds or something. And so this is really the best way that I've found to use the two together. Huh. That's, that's actually quite performant, 90 milliseconds. You're not talking about running JavaScript in 90 milliseconds, right? Like, I mean, obviously JavaScript itself could run that fast, but when you're talking about like any kind of DOM querying, there's no way that's running in 90 milliseconds, right? So an example for that would be uh, if you had an element query checking the width of an element. So let's say you have a number of div elements on a page and you've written a rule that says, when any div element is more than 300 pixels wide, I want you to apply the style to it. Mm -hmm. And so it would query the DOM for any tag matching that selector that you've given it, the div. It's going to find all of the divs and then use JavaScript logic to do a test that CSS is not powerful enough to do. So in this case, it would be uh, comparing the, each div's offset width against a number. Mm -hmm. And then if that passes, it will add a unique identifier to that tag in DOM and then write the CSS rule for that for each matching tag. So in the end, you end up with just a 
CSS style sheet that you've written for these unique identifiers that you've added. And every time that you reprocess that, it could be that the last time you ran it, it applied to a certain div and the next time it doesn't. And so it will have to clean up and remove that identifier from elements that no longer match. But yes, you can do all that in just uh, the blink of an eye. And you said that it's event-driven, so it happens on change events. It's not pulling the DOM or anything like that, right? Right. And so another key for performance is finding ways that you can kind of batch up the reprocessing. Uh, so instead of thinking about splitting your style sheets by component or splitting them by uh, different things, you end up splitting them by the events that drive them. And the big key to the performance there is that you can limit and only run it when you need to. And so that's where Mutation Observer and Resize Observer can really help you with that as well. Right. So there, I want to zero on something you just said, but I want to recap here. So you're telling me that you can query a DOM element for its offset width for one of its properties and then write to the DOM a unique identifier on that DOM element mm -hmm. and write out style sheet into the DOM all within 90 milliseconds. And then, of course, then the next screen paint is when that would uh, apply those that style, right? But you could do all that within 90 microseconds. You said microseconds. Yeah, yeah it can be it, just a, a tiny amount of time. Wow. And so that, to me, the stuff I was doing in 2015 was 10 times slower than that. So I'm really excited about kind of where things are headed. So you mentioned a couple of things just now. Um, Crap, I can't remember. I for, forget what they were. Some observers. Yes. Um, resize observer, mutation mm -hmm. observer, and intersection observer. Can you explain what each of those are and what you use them for? In addition to events like uh, window resize or like the input or change event on DOM nodes, there are also APIs in the browser, and these are kind of newer. And resize observer, all it's concerned about is you can observe a DOM node and when that resizes, it intercepts that and allows you to run JavaScript code. And so you don't have to be listening to the window resizing or you don't have to be uh, continually polling the DOM and checking. It's just at the moment that it decides a resize has happened, you're able to run your code. Uh, Mutation Observer is kind of similar. You're allowed to watch different things. You can watch an element's children. So if any of its children are added or removed or changed, you could intercept that. You can also watch for attributes to change. And there's other stuff as well. Intersection Observer is mostly uh, related to like visibility and scrolling. And so if you were going to try to style something when it was coming onto the screen or when it hit a certain point in the screen, that greatly simplifies the logic that you have to write in order to do that with JavaScript. What is the support for this in different browsers? I remember using, I think it was Intersection Observer like a year and a half ago, and it was pretty good. But what about the others? So what I've discovered is when you are trying to support CSS in older browsers, like if you're polyfilling CSS, you end up using, you end up relying on JavaScript to support those things. And so a lot of these techniques, whether it's element queries or whether it's extending selectors or even creating new units for CSS, I've gotten them working down in Internet Explorer 7, 8, 9. Uh, wow. I've gotten <laughs> prototypes of it working in IE6. And like I believe any browser that has JavaScript and CSS support can use these techniques. It's just a matter of how ugly you have to write the JavaScript, <laughs> pretty much. Well, I guess I was meaning huh. um, like 
the intersection observer and I don't remember the other two that we were talking about, but you're saying that you've written code that you don't necessarily need to rely on those. Yeah. So anything that the browser knows about, any feature that it has, you can leverage for writing nicer code for JavaScript and CSS working together. In the case of browsers that don't have intersection observer, I would watch the document scrolling element Okay. And I'd have to write a bunch of logic to determine like, you know, where, when something hits the top or when it hits the bottom, and I have to kind of invent all that logic myself. So that's where the stuff that you've written comes in, because I don't want to have to necessarily, if I do have to support older browsers, I don't want to have to do that myself. <laughs> right. So Tommy, one of, the, one of the things you've showed me before that I think is particularly interesting is the way that you use some of these techniques to um, polyfill isn't the right word. But, you know, like there's a lot of different features that I think people pine for in CSS, like like a closest selector similar to the closest method in JavaScript or um, element queries instead of just media queries. And I believe you've actually kind of created some stuff that allows you to use those in CSS, like actually in CSS by bolting in some JavaScript that somehow makes those things available. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So if you're used to JavaScript polyfilling, because JavaScript is a programming language, you can kind of create support for features that it doesn't have. But CSS isn't like that. So you can't extend CSS with CSS. But what I've discovered this year is that you can extend CSS in CSS. And so one of the ways that you can do that is with CSS variables, which are a feature in CSS. What I've discovered this summer and been working with is you can also write a custom selector in valid CSS syntax, but that doesn't apply to anything. And you can use at supports. The syntax for that is very flexible. So you can encode a lot of information inside valid CSS styles that don't apply in the browser, but they are parsed, they are read, and then JavaScript is able to go and look through the CSS object model. So there's document style sheets and you can loop through all of the style sheets, all of the rules that have been parsed. And JavaScript can read that, find these custom selectors or these custom at rules, and then essentially use that to drive JavaScript functions. So you can keep your JavaScript functions in JavaScript, and you can keep your styles in CSS. But what you're kind of able to do is write CSS, uh, I guess nobody uses the word standard library in relation to the CSS features, but you can write CSS that doesn't make use of this standard library of features and then define the features that you want in JavaScript and go from there. So it's, it's kind of like making CSS uh, slightly more high level and more declarative and then using CSS from your JavaScript. It's such a weird I don't know if it's weird is the right concept. I'm trying to decide if this is genius or madness or if it's just like completely obvious as well, right? Like obviously some of the timing things that you're talking about are really cool, but of course just regular old CSS gets this. So first off, you only use this when you can't get CSS to do what you want anyway, right? Yeah. You can't calculate like the CSS just isn't powerful enough to make these calculations and apply these styles on, you know, uh, given certain things. Have, have you compared this to like any of the uh, different media queries as far as like using this technique instead of the media queries to see if one's faster than the other? Well, anytime that you can express something in CSS it is definitely going to perform faster than anything that JavaScript can apply. So I've made a, a personal kind of a commitment to do everything that I can in CSS 
in actual CSS. I never want to be trying to teach JavaScript how to do something that CSS knows. And so what that ends up meaning is that as you use JavaScript to create dynamic styles and extend this, you never have to go lower level than CSS. You never have to teach it how to count when something is even or odd because that's something that CSS knows about. So if you're outputting CSS, you can leverage absolutely everything that's in CSS and bring with it everything that JavaScript knows about. But I don't want to be sitting there trying to reinvent a hover style by, you know, telling JavaScript to look at mouse enter and mouse leave events. Like, if that's something that CSS already knows about, I want to find a way to have JavaScript output the hover rule in CSS and let it worry about when something is being hovered. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So Tommy, how is this different from using a preprocessor like SAS or post-CSS? And when would you choose to use this over one of those tools? So with a CSS preprocessor, you are using some kind of a custom syntax, and it's a shorthand for outputting regular CSS. And so what we're finding is that a lot of the techniques and a lot of the dynamic styling is something that you necessarily have to use JavaScript for. So in a lot of cases, preprocessors don't really get you much closer. The magic really begins when the page loads, and that is the end of the reach of what a CSS preprocessor can help you with. But the future of dynamic CSS and styling, right now browser makers and the CSS working group are working on giving types to things that are in the CSS object model. And they are busy trying to create APIs that are going to expose different things like the layout engine and the rendering engine, the browser. And so in the future, if you wanted something like a Pinterest layout or some kind of custom rendering, rather than waiting for that to show up in CSS, you'll have the proper tools in the browser to be able to define this functionality and then use it from CSS. So what I'm doing here in the meantime is is kind of imitating or mimicking. It's the same kind of model, except that I am just using what JavaScript and browsers already have instead of these new APIs that are being worked on right now. So we're so, talking about oh, the new APIs that are part of Houdini, right? Yes. Is there going to be a performance gain in using those versus this approach, though, as more browsers implement that? Absolutely. Okay. And so the exciting thing is if you're using something like Element Queries, Every time the browser gets a new feature like Resize Observer and some of these layout APIs, you'll be able to write a better JavaScript function that does that for browsers that can use that feature. So if you think about HTML, HTML templating only helps you so far compared to something like React, where you have, you're creating just the DOM that you need at that moment, and 
it doesn't exist when you don't need it. You don't have to render it and send it. It's just like on the fly DOM templating and dynamic. And you can do some amazing stuff that like pug or an HTML templating thing, it doesn't even have the power to do. And so we're kind of moving into that age with CSS as well, where you've got dynamic templated CSS and it really matters less and less the original CSS that you send just for that first load, that's just the beginning. That's the firing pistol, not the end. And so preprocessors and just in general writing CSS to get you to that first load, I think is going to become less and less important in the future. And what happens from load and afterward, responding to events, responding to what's on the page at that time is going to be kind of where styling goes. And so CSS is definitely involved in that, but we're seeing the living CSS object model is much bigger than CSS. I hope I'm making sense. <laughs> I feel like such a CSS noob when I get to this stuff, right? That I'm always like... Ugh. CSS in 2018 is exciting. Yeah, this passion for trying to explore this stuff is what's actually gotten me into learning JavaScript. And trying to be able to do this stuff myself. And so I think that there's never been a better time. If you're a CSS person, there's never been a better time to start getting into JavaScript if you think about where CSS is headed. But also, if you write JavaScript, you can do some superpowers with CSS. You only need a little bit of knowledge. A lot of these patterns are pretty simple. I think what I really like about this is it feels like among the JavaScript crowd these days, not, not everybody, of course, but there's a there's a strong segment of people that feels like CSS is somehow broken because of some missing features or because it works differently from JavaScript. And so the kind of the natural tendency, if you reach that conclusion, is to build something in JavaScript that replaces it or kind of somehow does the end around around the stuff that people don't like. And I really like how the stuff you're doing, Tommy, is... is kind of taking this different perspective that's like, well, let's, let's add these things to CSS until they come natively rather than building something that kind of works independent of it. Um, and I know CSS and JS purists would tell me that that's a horrible misrepresentation of what it actually does. But as someone who really likes CSS, um, I, I just really like this approach. I find it really interesting. I do worry about the extra JavaScript, but I'm also kind of neurotic about that sort of thing. But yeah, this stuff is really cool, especially like how many years have people been complaining about like element queries and then you wrote this thing that allows it to actually happen? Like that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think a lot of people, and I'm coming from a graphic design background, so I don't always have the terminology to talk about uh, computer science concepts, but CSS is kind of a weird language. It's a lot of people argue whether it's a programming language or not, and that's not important. What it has in it, it's a declarative language, and it's got elements of structured programming with conditional things like media queries and feature queries. Animations and keyframes are these little blocks inside of this sea of declarative language where you've got specific sequence and orders of things. You've also got inheritance and the cascade and like I said, CSS variables allow you to bring in that element of reactive programming as well. So I think a lot of CSS tooling, when you look at CSS and JS, you find a lot of people who might enjoy certain programming paradigms or concepts, and they don't like working with other ones. And so you see people trying to abstract away or bring their 
model of thinking or how they like to write code to CSS. And what I found is you can kind of leverage all of that without having to sacrifice any of it. And when you're extending it with JavaScript, you can write it however you like. You can create your plugins in a very functional programming style if that's your thing and have that talk to and work with CSS without having to forfeit anything that CSS offers. But I'm pretty excited about the possibility there uh, for expression. What do you mean by expression? Like, what, what are you expressing in your CSS? So, for example, one of the largest groups of the types of plugins that I have are extended selectors. So whether it's an ancestor selector or supporting the has selector from CSS in browsers or a parent selector or uh, just finding new relationships between tags or being able to select that. And so if you were into a particular thing like functional programming and you wanted to write your plugins in a certain way that you could test a certain way and that expose certain truths about what you're trying to write, you have the total flexibility in the JavaScript that you write to write these plugins. However, if you wanted to use some dialect of JavaScript for certain advantages, or if you wanted to tie it into another system, it's completely flexible and you can use any part of JavaScript that is available to you for this purpose. So are there any gotchas to this approach? Yeah. If you have a very complex page with a lot of elements, it can be easy for you to write ineffective JavaScript. It's the same downsides to writing JavaScript in general. The same performance considerations and the same gotchas, like you can create an infinite loop in JavaScript, so you have to structure your code in a way that that kind of thing doesn't happen. You want to simplify and be running the smallest, the least amount of code, the fewest times on the fewest elements to see the change that you want. So let's say you have a grid of 50 elements and you wanted them to all have a certain color when they're a certain width. You don't have to necessarily, if you know that they're all going to resize at the same time, you can watch one instead of watching 50. So there's ways that you can reduce the amount of JavaScript that you have to run. I'm getting this crazy idea in my head. Is there a way you could actually do like Conway's Game of Life or something with CSS or with JS in CSS? Uh, definitely, because you can make use of anything from JavaScript. I've seen some people try to do that with CSS before, and it needed either JavaScript or a user clicking to continue. Okay. But I've heard that CSS variables allow this to happen, but I've never seen a demonstration built with it. But you might be able to do that with CSS alone, although I don't think anybody has yet. Challenge to the listener, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. I have used this JS and CSS to do FizzBuzz before. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, with the selectors, so targeting them. So like you'd have your Fizz, your Buzz, and your FizzBuzz being targeted <laughs> oh, differently based on the same kind of JavaScript logic that you would use to write the console log or whatever you're going to do. So what's coming next in CSS that you're excited about then that'll you know take some of the JavaScript you have to pull into this off the table? Some of the most exciting new features to me are we're getting a min function and a max function, which function very much like JavaScript's math min and math max. And we're also going to get a clamp, which would clamp a number. And so if you think in CSS, there's the calc function that allows you to combine and do math with numbers of different units that CSS knows about. JavaScript is limited just to working in pixels. It doesn't know what some of these units are. And so with the addition of min and max that would allow you to pick the larger or smaller between numbers of different CSS units, 
that's going to allow a lot of interesting expressions in our styles. For example, we have min width and max width in addition to width, and we have min height and max height in addition to height, but we don't really need them if we have min and max. You can just set width, min, and then put your two values there. And so it's kind of like adding these two functions to CSS is like getting a min and a max for everything, like min padding left, max padding left. You can, any property that has some kind of a measurement, you can now, like all across CSS, you just gain the ability to do min and max in there. Oh, nice. Are there good ways of testing this or do you have to do it all visually? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, for most front-end stuff, even if it's CSS, uh, I haven't found a really good way to test it other than loading it up in individual browsers and putting it through the paces, testing all the different states that your HTML can get into and observing. And part of that is because I'm not sure how you would necessarily measure what passes or fails at all the different screen widths. Like think if, if you're gonna support a layout from 200 pixels wide to 2000 pixels wide, do you have to do every one of those tests at every pixel width between there, like 1800 different widths that you wanna support? So I don't really have a great answer for how to test front end stuff other than just looking on actual devices in actual browsers and measuring it. So if somebody wanted to get started with this, let's say they're going, you know what, challenge accepted, I'm gonna do the Conway's game of life. Where would they get started? If you wanted to get started with experimenting with this, I've got a package on NPM named JS and CSS. And that is the event-driven virtual style sheet manager. So it's kind of like a higher order function that takes a function that returns a style sheet. So when you want to do something like Conway's Game of Life, I'm picturing that maybe you would be able to do that with a lot of elements on a page and then selectors. And so you're going to be writing a JavaScript function that takes a selector for those elements on the page and it's going to find them. It's going to test that game of life logic based on the other elements. And then it's going to return either this element passes the test. So at this moment, we're going to apply this style to it. And so the function that you write as your style sheet function will make use of this generic Conway selector plugin. And then you'd run that through JS and CSS to tell it what to watch and what events to listen for. These functions for a selector or something, a lot of them just take about 10 minutes to write. They're not necessarily the biggest things. It's usually coming down to just writing an if statement is where that the heart of it lies is, does this test true or false on this element? And so a lot of them are fairly simple. Right, so you're just testing a property here or there and making sure that the conditions match. Yeah. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. Whenever I hear JS and CSS, it always sounds more complicated, I guess, than it is. Yeah, a lot of the solutions out there depend on JavaScript being the thing that's putting your HTML together. And so some of those tools, they only work with HTML that you're creating or only work with a certain framework. But when you're working with CSS itself, that applies to any HTML or XML that the browser knows about, no matter how it got there or what tool was used for it. Mm -hmm. So it can be just as simple to support these things like once and for all for every page that you might ever need to use it on uh, and not be kind of tied into one framework or one workflow. Gotcha. When Sorry. you talk about caffeinated style sheets, what are those? Is this what we've been talking about the whole time or? Yeah. And is there decaf versions, latte versions? 
<laughs> so I've been picking the term caffeinated style sheets for this higher level CSS where you're declaring the styles that you want to use in CSS syntax, even if you're using JavaScript to actually bring the functionality. And so the reason I call it caffeinated style sheets is that you get the idea of JavaScript in your CSS style sheets, but the initials of caffeinated style sheets are still CSS. So like we're still talking about CSS. It's just caffeinated. It's got a little bit of JavaScript in there, giving it a little life. Oh, it's a play on Java JavaScript. For some reason, I'm slow and I didn't catch that. Oh, no worries. So the tools that I've used so far for parsing the JS-powered rules out of a caffeinated style sheet, I've created one called Caffeine with a Q and another one called Decaf. And so what Caffeine would do is you've got this CSS style sheet that you've written in CSS and you run it through this tool and it parses out any of the JS powered rules and gives back either just the clean CSS and then the function calls written for JavaScript with all the plugins. So you only serve the valid CSS that runs and the JavaScript to make your styles run. Decaf does that client side. So you can serve that extended CSS style sheet, the caffeinated style sheet, and it will be parsed by the browser because it's valid CSS. And then Decaf looks through document style sheets in the CSS object model and pulls them from there. And so Decaf has really let me experiment on CodePen and speed up the speed at which I can prototype these things. But if you're using it for production, you can kind of pre-process that server side and only be serving straight CSS and straight JavaScript as well. So is anyone out there using this? I mean, websites that people might have heard of or be able to go check out? I'm not sure yet. It would be very hard to detect because the way that this works, it can kind of melt away. Like if you're using that caffeine parser, there wouldn't necessarily be anything left over in what they're serving that you would tell that that's how they wrote it. I did present this method of doing things at Web Unleashed 2018 in October. So I'm hoping and looking forward to seeing people take this idea and work with it and hopefully... Um, I'll see some plugins out there that are written in a way that work, and then I'll know people are using it. Gotcha. And I'm assuming that this is a good fit for things like, uh, we had an episode a couple weeks ago with uh, some of the developer advocates from Netlify. And I'm assuming that this would be a good fit for something like that, where it's, it's Jamstack and it's, you know, you just basically statically generate the site. It runs caffeine in the background as it generates everything else. And then, you know, you're, you're kind of off to the races from there. Yeah, this is something that would, uh, it's pretty easy to do whether it's server side or client side. And so it should be pretty flexible for no matter how you're putting your site together or serving it, you can kind of integrate this in. Does it play nicely with Webpack or Parcel or some of these other tools? I haven't used an awful lot of bundlers with it. I've done a little bit of experimentation. JS and CSS does bundle well. And so any of the plugins that you're using could also bundle. Decaf and Caffeine would be kind of outside of that. The server-side parser that I have, it just returns a JavaScript file with everything in it. So it's got JS and CSS, every plugin that you actually used, and all of the rules that you expressed in your style sheet. And so you don't need anything beyond that. That one file contains all of the JavaScript for your styling. Makes sense. Well, I don't know if I have any other questions. Anyone else have questions? Nope. All right. Well, let's do some picks then. Uh, before we do that, though, Tommy, where do people find you online? You can look for me on Twitter 
I'm in Avati, and that's the spot where I share most of my experiments. Awesome. Hey, guys, let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear, I've used every project management software there is out there, and I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the REST. If you go to HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber. All right, well, let's get some picks then. Joe, do you have some picks for us? Are you kidding? I always got picks for you, Chuck. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't pick for anybody but you, Chuck. Yeah, so let's see here. I've been doing a lot of board game playing. And I recently played this really awesome board game, except for the life of me, the, it's called The Captain is Dead. That's what it was. I was blanking on the name for me. I was thinking Star Trek. It's called The Captain is Dead, which is basically you're playing Star Trek and you're on the ship and the captain has, you've been attacked by aliens and the captain has been killed and everybody's got to work together to try to figure out and solve, got to, try to get away, basically. So it's a co-op game. It's really fun. You all work together. And I don't know, a really, really, really fun game. Good concept. Has a, it's really intense, though. Really enjoyed it. So that's going to be my pick, is The Captain is Dead. And it does have an expansion, too, which looks pretty interesting. Nice. Amy, what are your picks? Okay, so I have a programming one, and then I have a kind of serious one. So the programming one at NPM, I will be doing an on-call rotation and I have done that before. And I actually think it is a pretty good idea because while it can be stressful, I think it's important to take ownership of the code you're deploying and be held accountable for that sort of thing if it does go down. This is just an article and it's why he thinks developers should be on call. So that's going to be my first pick. And then the second one, so everybody knows like I'm a big health nut. And if anything, I try to avoid the amount of sugar I take in. And I know as developers, sometimes this can be a hard thing. Like I know for me, even I go to conferences and there's all kinds of like amazing food there. But just in this past week, so we record these episodes a good ways out. Um, my cat just jumped on my desk and startled me. <laughs> Anyways, but uh this past week, just like two things really hit me. So uh, one of my best friends in Baltimore, she was diagnosed with diabetes, and that's going to affect her ability to have children. She doesn't have the best diet in the world. So that was kind of, uh, it's possibly reversible for her. So um, she's going to try to eat a little bit better and see what happens. But for like women who want to have kids like her, that was really devastating news. If anybody's on Twitter, they know uh, my mom and grandma have both been battling health issues this year. My grandmother, uh, she has pneumonia in the hospital right now, probably not going to make it. So we're just kind of waiting for that call at any time. But that's pneumonia. But the like just past three years or so that my parents have been caregivers for, she's battled like really, really, really severe Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's is highly linked to a high sugar diet. So just uh, another thing to keep an eye on. And yeah, I don't know, kind of a serious note, but two people I care about both kind of really affected by that. So I don't know, it's the holidays and maybe try to 
not have as much sugar as you might normally because sometimes there is repercussions. So everything in moderation. That's really relevant for me because I'm <laughs> wildly out of shape and super addicted to sugar. <laughs> so uh, like hugs for everyone. I don't mean that to sound like judgmental or anything like that. Just that I care about the people that listen and I want them to take care of themselves. So that's it for me. I'll just start here by your grandma, Ames. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she's old. She's lived a good life. If anything, I'm more worried about my mom because my mom's been battling health issues and the stress of taking care of my grandmother uh, mm. has definitely made that worse. So thank you, though. Yep. And uh, yeah, we're here for you. I know that uh, Joe helped me through some stuff when my dad passed. And so, you know, we're here. We're happy to help you, too. Thank so. you. You guys are the best. <laughs> Chris, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I do. So the first, Timely, is um, uh, there's this guy, Tommy Hodgins, who's been doing this I think JavaScript and CSS thing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> this um, we're recording this in December. And this month for um, Mary CSS Miss, Tommy's been doing every day just a different kind of like code snippet or demo of some stuff you can do with a lot of the techniques he talked about today. It's a really long Twitter thread with a whole bunch of really interesting snippets that you can dig into and see how some of this stuff works. Um, so that would be super interesting for everybody to check out. This week, I also learned about Erie over at Bits of Code. And uh, each day, she's been pumping out some incredible JavaScript, CSS, HTML-related tutorials and how-tos, just really, really awesome stuff. I'd had um, writing about Aria Live as a thing I wanted to write about for maybe three months. And then just last week, she ended up writing a post about it that was way better than anything I could have written on the topic. Um, if you're looking for some new reading material on all things front end, um, I cannot recommend her blog enough. It is just incredible. The last one for me... Um, I um, have been using Gulp for a long time, but uh, they just recently released version 4.0. And I ended up, um, I had this Gulp boilerplate project that was out on GitHub for a while, and I kind of deprecated it because I had stopped maintaining it. But I just gave it complete overhaul with the 4.0 update, added a bunch of new features and stuff to it massively cleaned up the documentation. So if you've been thinking about getting into a build system like Gulp for a while and haven't been sure where to start, um, that might be worth checking out. That's it for me. Nice. Um, I'm going to throw out just one pick. Uh, and I'm not sure because we record these episodes, as Chris implied, like five weeks ahead of time. And it's just a function of the way that our recording schedule goes and some of the events that I wind up going to and recording things out as well and releasing on the feed. But anyway. I'm basically picking that you can get coaching with me at no cost. Well, at no monetary cost. And I, I get requests, especially from this show, a lot from either people who are just getting into coding and they're like, hey, can you, you know, what do I need to do to find a job? Or I get uh, requests from people, you know, on certain aspects of JavaScript or, you know, things that I know about. Um, I also get requests for Ruby stuff off of Ruby Rogues. But then I tell them my coaching rate and, you know, some people can't afford it. So if you want to talk to me, here's what you have to do. I'm going to put a URL in the show notes, but it's github.com slash cmaxw. That's my handle, C-M-A-X-W, slash devchat-110. The 11 you may remember, is the system that we talked to Phil Hawksworth and Divya Sosideron about at, on, on the episode where we talked about Jamstack. I've decided to migrate devchat.tv over to Jamstack. And it's turned out to be a bit of work, but the maintenance on it is almost nil. 
and WordPress, the maintenance on it is anything but nil. The more I dig into it, the more that I'm just really digging it. But I need some help on some of it. Primarily, there are shows that have no show notes or just have like a one or two sentence summary on them. And so if I could get people to go in and fill those in, for every three episodes that you add show notes on, which means you have to listen to the episode and follow the format that the other, the more recent shows use, if you fill those in, uh, just do a pull request. And if those shows haven't been done, which means you probably want to go put an issue in and say, I'm doing episodes one, two, and three of JavaScript Jabber, for example. And that way I know, okay, you reserved them first. So, you know, these three count for you. But anyway, if you get that done on the show notes, then I'll, I'll give you an hour of coaching. If you do tags in the front matter of each of the episodes, if you do that for five episodes, so you have to listen to the episodes and put the tags in, but it's not as much work as writing show notes. For every five episodes, I'll also do an hour of coaching. And uh, so, yeah, I'm just going to open that up. Um, so if there's stuff you're stuck on that you think I can help you with, then let me know. And I'm talking about a lot of the kinds of things that I'm really prepared to help people talk about on the DevRev show. So if you want to go check out the DevRev show and watch, as we're recording this, I currently have like 20 episodes out. And by the time this goes live, I'll probably have like 40 or 50 out. So yeah, if you have any specific things you want to just dive deeper on, then set that up. And then once I accept the pull request, then I will give you a link where you can go schedule the coaching. So anyway, just putting that out there. And uh, I really appreciate everybody helping out. But this is also an opportunity for people to come in and submit like typos and things like that in the show notes. I've, I've had people request to be able to do that. And I just hadn't gotten that together yet. So anyway, that's, that's what I've got. Uh, Tommy, do you have some picks for us? I would say check out JS and CSS on NPM. Cool. Well, if, if that's what we've got, then we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, this has been a really interesting episode. I really, really enjoy talking about some of these things that I know a little bit less about, I guess, but are really powerful features of our web applications. So thanks for coming, Tommy. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we'll catch everyone next week. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.